0: I'm really glad that you're here this morning, and this morning uh, I want to share some things with you, almost, if I uh, could put it this way, almost like a a loving father to maybe a peer or a grandfather or, if I can, a loving father to to one of my own kids. Uh, Something that is so close to me that it has deeply impacted me, and part of that reason is because I've misunderstood what I'm about to teach this morning for so many years of my own life that... Um, I, I want to, maybe maybe more than most Sundays, I want to kind of draw you in to see something maybe afresh and anew that to me has been an absolute game changer in how I see who Jesus is and how I see hope and faith in life. So if you're listening online later or you're here this morning, I just want to tell you, this thing is fresh to me. It's it's um, renewing for me, and it's it's so important and I want to share some stories later on toward the end of this message that I hope will kind of nail this down a little bit for you to help you see what I'm talking about, the implications of what I'm uh, talking about this morning. And so I almost wish we could all be seated together around one of our tables out there and you would ask me, Tim, if you could give one or two messages and that's all you had to give at Grace Point Church, what would you say? What would be some of the most important things that you have to say? And I would tell you what I'm about to say this morning is one of those hallmark plant-the-flag kind of moments that I wouldn't want to get away from this because it's so vital and so, so important to faith and understanding God. So I want to explain that, lay that out, and, and hopefully you can see that and, and react and you get a chance to interact and respond to that as you will. Okay. So I want to frame it up this way. Uh, To start with, and that is this reality that every day, every morning of every day, we tend to roll out of bed and we want to make decisions that we think are right, right decisions. And whether that is whatever you're going to wear for the day, or whether you're going to pack your lunch or buy your lunch, or, you know, what uh, you're going to do with your client when they show up, or how much you're going to study for your exam today, or, you know, what you're going to say to your teacher or your peer, or what you're going to post on social media. I mean, every day we wake up and we want to make right decisions, contrast it with the alternative, there isn't any one of us here, I think, who would roll out of bed and say, you know what, today I want to make a whole host of wrong decisions. I'd like to wear a bathing suit to work, for example. Right? Like, no, I'm probably not going to do that. I'd like to actually say what I think about my boss to their face when I'm the most angry. No, that's probably a wrong decision. Like, we don't generally want to make the wrong decisions. So we generally want to make right decisions. We want to do the right thing in what we do. I get that. Now, the, the question becomes, how does one know what is right? How do you decide when you roll out of bed what is the right thing to do? What determines and what's the basis, if you will, of your decisions about what is right? How much time should I spend at work? How much money should we supposedly make? What should I do with those resources? How do you make those decisions. And, and I liken it 10 years ago, Chuck Holt, uh, director of the factory ministries and friend of mine, I had him come speak at what was then Paradise Mennonite Church, which is the same building you're sitting in here this morning. And this was before Chuck was really here and, and I was you know, still getting used to things. And Chuck asked me the question, he said, what should I wear on a Sunday morning here? To which I said this, I said, you would be most comfortable in a suit and tie. And there was a pause on the phone because he realized that that's actually maybe not true like actually he might be more comfortable in shorts and a t-shirt but what I meant was the people my interpretation of the environment was that the people would listen to you best if you wore a suit and a tie that would help your message get across. Because the guiding principle of what is the right thing for Chuck as a speaker to wear a decade ago, the answer on what is right is driven by a guiding principle that isn't has nothing to do with actually whether Chuck is comfortable or not. It has to do with what will be the most well received. And we all have some guiding principle that drives our decisions on what is right. We, we all do, and just the way that it works. Now, as things develop, okay, this is something that we call. When I, when I make a decision of what is right, the Bible has a word for that, and it's a word that is called righteousness. Righteousness, which sometimes is translated righteousness, is the act of doing the right things. Righteousness, and this is simply the basis of righteousness. When I have, and when you have, a day. When you roll out of bed at the time that you wanted to, with the coffee or drink that you wanted to, with whatever private, quiet time you had to kind of get oriented today to your faith, to who God is, how he's going to interact with your day and use you for your day, how you're going to interact with your clients. And at the end of the day, if everything goes quote-unquote right, if you've been able to make right decisions, even if things in your schedule have gone wrong, you might at the end of the day say, I had a good day. Why? Because you had a righteous day, if you will, by your own standards. That a day that is full of things that go right becomes a day that becomes for all of us a good day. It's called right righteousness. Now, the complicating factor with all of this is that sometimes we don't know how to make right decisions. And we don't know what right often is. In fact, there's a couple things that get in the way of just always rolling out of bed and making right decisions because doing the right thing and making the right decisions are complicated. There's a couple things that get in the way. Number one, sometimes I don't know what's right. I've had conversations with people throughout the week here and throughout the month and the season. People are trying to decide what to do with their lives in the future. Who should I date? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? Where should I spend my money? What should I do with my health situation? I mean, what do I do? What is, what is right to do? Sometimes I don't know what's right. It's complicated, isn't it? Sometimes I do know what's right, but I don't want to do it, right? I do know, but I don't want to do it, right? And that's, that's a reality, too. But sometimes what's right for me isn't right for you. My right isn't your right. If you aren't sure what that means, just try driving down Route 340 during tourist season. And while the speed limit is 50, the tourist thinks it is right to drive 25. It isn't Right? Right? Because my right isn't necessarily your right, and even though they'd have the quote-unquote legal right to drive 25, we all know, who no longer care about seeing horse poop on the road, that you can drive actually longer or faster than 25, and it will be right. In fact, they will be right be more righteous if you drive faster. But my right isn't always your right, and so this is a complicated situation because life is full of interconnected relationships, and my decision to drive slower or faster impacts you. And so there's a lot of complications with doing the right thing, which is why it's so complex. Now, when you add to that situation of wanting to do right, kind of being confused, I don't know what to do is right, and sometimes I know, but I don't want to do it, and then sometimes my right isn't your right, you add into all of that God. What he wants you to do. Not just what you want to do, but now, play the God card in this for a minute. This is what God wants you to do, and me to do. You get righteousness coming from a faith perspective. It can be very toxic if we're not careful. I do not need to go over even what happened this week, let alone last week or the week before, in the lives of Christian leaders who have, on the one hand, said this is right. What God wants is moral purity. This is right. And yet, on the other hand, are over here Doing something completely, completely opposite. I do not need to go over the list of names of people who have been in this camp. And meanwhile, the world looks on and says, really? Bunch of hypocrite, bleep, 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 people. Because when you add faith to it, and you say, not only should you do what's right, but God now expects you to do what's right. And there's a moral and ethical and faith component to doing what is right in the righteousness of God. It becomes a very toxic environment because of this problem. In a world where righteousness is measured by making and keeping rules, we are all destined to fail. In a world where righteousness is determined by making and keeping rules, we are all destined to fail. We are. In a world where the church or Christians or faith leaders... Individual people following Jesus make righteousness about a set of rules so we know what the right things are to do. We are setting ourselves up for constant failure, and yet we want to do the right things. I want to flesh this out for you in one of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. So, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in your New Testament. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible, but Matthew chapter chapter 5 is where we are at. And in this series that we've been in called Power, what we're looking at is the The power of Jesus' kingdom compared to the kingdom of this world. And in Matthew 5, Jesus lays out some principles, some teachings for people who are in his kingdom that are not necessarily the way that this world looks at power. It's very different. In fact, Jesus' power comes from his resurrection. Out of death comes life. In that teaching, that whole different philosophy of teaching, out of death comes life, and I haven't come to be served, but to serve completely, completely, completely different view of power. Jesus gives a completely, completely, completely different view of what righteousness actually is. But it doesn't look that way, and that is the problem. It doesn't look like that. In fact, what we're about to read, what you're about to see, looks like what we should do is continue to set up a bunch of rules and regulations and work really super hard to follow them. It looks that way, because that is just the way that we are wired to think, just is. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 5. If you're there, you can see, uh, beginning at verse 1, Jesus is sitting down on the mountainside. and He sat down, and his disciples, a crowd of, we think, hundreds, if not thousands of people, not just 5, 10, 12, came to him, because it's a very popular moment in Jesus' life. And he began to teach them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he introduces the kingdom concept in verse 3. Then blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We're going to look at that verse this morning. Then he goes on. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we said it before in verses 3 and 10. The kingdom of heaven is in view. This whole thing about blessed are, these are... These are the characteristics of people who live in Jesus' kingdom, who have the power, if you will, to live according to the kingdom as he teaches it. And so here's the verse we're looking at this morning, verse 6. He makes this statement in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is, this is such a big verse, such a big concept, and to me it's, I've seen it misunderstood and I have misunderstood it for so many years and I want to flesh this out and bring you with me through my growing understanding of what this means. He says, so let's talk about these words for a minute. Righteousness uh, is this idea of doing what's right in God's eyes. It's the simple definition of that word. So Jesus uses a word that says, I want you to do what's right in, in God's eyes. And then he says, hunger and thirst. So it's an interesting thing that he says there. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not just those who know what's right, but those who hunger and thirst, which is a different, uh, different verb, different draw, different appeal to this. Like, like, Blessed are you when you actually develop an appetite for the things that are right that God wants. Like it's a good thing. And by the way, Few of us understand, I certainly don't understand, the depth of the pain of actually being very hungry and very thirsty. That is a physiological phenomenon that I don't experience often because I almost always have food in the pantry, almost always have something that I can drink. But there have been times, maybe when the guy preaches long Sunday morning, and your stomach starts growling, and you're like, "Aha! Uh-huh, when will he be done so that I can eat?" You begin to feel some of the pains, and you can't help it. But hunger and thirst are painful things; they're very human and natural things, we can't help it. And he said, "Blessed are you when those things, those natural desires that drive you with pain, drive you to know what." Is the right thing to do, especially when you hunger and thirst—very base desires for righteousness. For they will be, and the second part of the beatitude is they will be filled. That's a that's a good deal. Like the word "fulfilled," there has to do with. Um, a word they use when they talk about fattening up an animal to kill it. Okay? So I guess you could picture yourself that way if you wanted to, but that's not the idea Jesus has in mind. But the fattened calf kind of thing, the, the full calf, the one that will provide much food to everybody because they've been fattened up for it. And so he says here, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. Now think about that for a minute. Even when you eat lunch today, at some point you're still going to want to eat dinner, right? Like You're not going to be filled for good. You're just going to be filled for now. The implication of this is that actually you're going to be filled for good. Jesus met a woman, Samaritan woman in John 4, and in that meeting with her, she's at the well pulling up the bucket from the well, and he goes to her and asks for a drink, and ultimately he says to her, Listen, woman, the water that you're drinking, when you drink it, you're going to thirst again, but when you drink from the water I give you, and some of you know this, you won't ever thirst again. Like, actually, I'm I'm going to fill you. And the the question for all of us, and we've been around long enough to know this, that, that there is very, very little in this world that actually fills to that degree, right? I mean, certainly food isn't that filling, and certainly, by the way, money isn't that filling either, is it? I mean, as much as we wanted to make more money in 10 years than we did 10 years ago, now maybe you're making that money, but what do you want more of it, right? Like, that isn't filling. How about real estate or owning property? Once you have it, you want more, right? I mean, just once you have power, don't you want a little bit more? Once your reputation is good, don't you want to make sure that you, that you keep it? Like, what is it in life that actually is filling to that degree where you're like, yeah, I've, I've, I don't have that appetite anymore? And Jesus says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for what God wants, for the good things, and then you will be filled. This idea of my soul being satisfied. He describes something that is very, very absent from our human experience, very difficult for us to imagine in this world, because just about everything we want more of, just the way that we're wired. Now, what does Jesus actually mean? On the one hand, this seems really simple, really simple. And for me, I took it very simply for a long time, and I I thought I was doing a good job of figuring that out. Like You could say, one could argue, well, here's the deal. This is what Jesus means. The more passionately you pursue the things of God then the more satisfied you will be. It just kind of seems that way. Like If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, like your life will be better and you'll be filled. It just seems to be simple. And honestly, we could preach that message and we could listen to that. We could walk out of here and be kind of okay with that. But I'd like to suggest that it actually creates a a subtle, if not a non-subtle, problem. And that is, it makes salvation... What theologians call sanctification, even. Sanctification is the act of growing more Christ-like, basically. It, it, it makes it have nothing to do with Jesus anymore. In fact, it's counterintuitive. It's counter-gospel. It's counter-Jesus to suggest that the message of this is, listen, know the right things to do that God wants to do, and just be better at hungering for those and doing those things, and then you will be filled Because the Pharisee in me, the one who's the law keeper in me, wants that. I want to know exactly what the speed limit is. I want to know exactly what I'm allowed to wear. I want to know exactly what I should say. I want to know exactly what morality is, and I want to be able to do that so that I can do the right thing, because every morning of every day I roll out of bed, as do you, and we want to make the right decisions, and it's no different with our faith. And when Jesus makes a statement like this, I just want to line that up with my Pharisaic nature, with my law keeping nature, and I just want to find out what are the rules to follow God. And then what I do is I spend years, I spend years studying, learning, reading, trying to obey, all the while, all the while, along the way, finding myself failing and falling and flailing the more I understand the law the more I understand what God wants. The more I find myself falling further and further and further away from that. And so this teaching from Jesus is not what it seems at first. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what that does, if we are not careful about it, it just incites in us this stream in us that already exists that wants to do the right thing. And it encourages It encourages a very rule-based, rigid quote-unquote Christianity. The problem is, Jesus' own teaching doesn't support this concept. The concept that just know God's word more, obey it better, be more consistent with, be more faithful at, and you'll be filled. His own teaching doesn't even support that theory. In fact, look down later in Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bible still open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Consider what Jesus has to say here. He makes a statement. He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we want to play the game... We want to play the game of my obedience and your obedience brings me into the kingdom. Let's play the game for a minute. Okay, fine, play the game. Then Jesus says, if you want to play that, just be sure that your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, (laughs) which to us might mean almost nothing, but to the common Jew or, or even Gentile sitting on the hillside that day, this would be impossible. The Pharisees already have memorized Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, by the way. Just to start, they know the 613 commands that the Ten Commandments turned into. They know all those. They enforce all those and they understand the nuances of it all. Some of them walk with their heads down so they don't see a woman and happen to be tempted by that and they run into the wall instead of her. They do that. Do you? And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that, that is a quality that it's, it's decent, but it's not good enough. Unless your, law, unless your righteousness surpasses the very best people in the land, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is an impossible standard to which the Jews have to be sitting there like, what? So my righteousness has to be better than the very best people that we know? The people who have given us the law? I mean, our righteousness has to be better than that. And Jesus makes another statement. It's very interesting. And it's in the verses just ahead. Look in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Just back it up a couple of verses. And in there he says, listen, I, I haven't come to, to abolish the law and the prophets, but I, I've come to fulfill them. Like I, I've come to fulfill. I have come to fulfill the law. All the law, all the law is wrapped up in me, in a person, Not in the teaching, and not in a new set of laws, but all the law is fulfilled in me. Okay. So Jesus, what are you saying? One of my mentors, Howard Hendricks, used to tell us in seminary all the time, he said, use scripture to interpret scripture. When you're not sure what's going on, are, is there any other points in scripture that help you understand what's going on? And to me, one of those points is in the book of Philippians. If you want to, you can turn there with me. I invite you to do that. Philippians is just a couple books later, past Matthew, um, if you find galatians you'll find ephesians and you find philippians it's a small little read in there but but paul is writing and he's writing in philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 10 is where i'm going to be just for a second because it helps explain i think what's going on now, paul writes he says this in verse 2 to the church in philippi this is a young church by the way trying to figure out what they do in a gentile world and the jewish world and all that so he says verse 2 watch out for those dogs those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Pause it there real quick. If you have no idea what's going on, that's okay. Let me tell you quickly. By Philippians, by the book of Philippians now, Jesus has come and gone. He's buried, died, died, buried, resurrected. He went back to heaven, and then, then the church is kind of setting out, and the, and the church is trying to figure out, what are we? Are we an old covenant thing? Do we follow the Mosaic covenant? Do we follow the Jewish laws? I don't know. Jesus brought a new covenant, so what does that mean? And what Paul is doing is saying to the church in Philippi, listen, be careful of the people who tell you. Be careful of the people who tell you, follow the law. They're simply mutilators of the flesh. Those who require circumcision, which was a sign of the Abrahamic Mosaic covenants, that's how you knew you were in by circumcision. That's weird, just the way it was, right? That's just the way it was. Beware of those who say, "Yeah, now, now get in line to do the Old Testament stuff." Beware of those people. All they're doing is mutilating flesh. They're not actually doing anything spiritually. Beware of those people. They're dogs, he says, because we put no confidence. We put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul explains his own story. Look at his story here at the end of verse, or in verse 4. He says, I, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, and then he lists his resume. He says, hey, if anyone here thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. This, by the way, is his family history. I was of the people of Israel. Like, I wasn't someone who came to believe in Yahweh. I was an Israelite. I was born an Israelite. And by the way, I was also of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. If you want to look at the ideal Jew, this is me. I mean, I was raised this way. I have a name that is in this space. right? I have a family heritage that's strong. And then he says, in regard to the law, like my law-keeping, I was a Pharisee. Like, I, I did it. He was a Pharisee. And then he says, verse 6, as for zeal, persecuting the church. It's true. Like, he had the most passion in the room. He just did. He was killing people, right? He was putting people in prison. He was torturing people who claimed to be Christians. He had the zeal. And he had the family history. And he had this passion. And then he goes on in verse, the end of verse 6, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Man, I was nailing it on the law-keeping. I was nailing. I was getting it. Always, always, I was getting it done. <laughs> but verse seven. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. What's he saying? He's saying, young church in Philippi, I know your your heart. You're going to want to roll out of bed every morning or every day and do the right thing. And there are going to be people who come to you and are going to play the God card and say, God wants you to be circumcised. God wants you to do this. God does. And you're going to be tempted to turn your relationship to God into a list, into a set of rules, into a moral and ethical framework in which the more you obey, the more you think God will bless you. That is the antithesis, the opposite of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is exactly why Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying, guys, it is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven by works of righteousness. In fact, that's why I've come. I've come, Jesus says, I've come that I might fulfill the heart of the law. The heart of the law. Not that you will now be able to obey every command, but I've come to fulfill the heart or the spirit of this law to love God and ultimately love your neighbor. We know laws are made all the time, and you've seen laws misapplied in strange ways. Maybe you saw this week the lady coming off the Delta flight from France. Did you see that story? This lady comes off the Delta flight from France, and she wasn't hungry at the time, and she had an apple that was given to her. She's walking through U.S. Customs, it's in her purse from the Delta flight. And the U.S. Customs agent says, hey, how was your trip to France? And she said, good. They said, was it expensive? And she said, I don't know, kind of. He said, it's about to get more expensive, I need to charge you $500 for bringing in forbidden fruit from another country. And let me ask you, do you think that was the letter of the law? Yes. Do you think whoever wrote that law was sitting there thinking, you know what we need to do? We need to stop all these Delta apples from getting into America. Five hundred dollars. No, no. This this was not the intent of the law to stop that. So this is what we do. We create laws to try to bring structure to society. I get it, I'm not against law, I'm not for lawlessness. Jesus says, all of these laws that we've created were for a reason, were for a purpose, and they get misapplied because humanity gets their hand on them. One of them is Corbin. Read about that in the Gospel of Luke, that many of the the Jews were taking their homes and their places and they were, quote unquote, dedicating them to the Lord. It would be like me now taking my home that I own, that I, that I, well, still paying on, but right, that that I live in. I'd say, God, I'm going to dedicate this home to you. And then if my parents needed a place to stay, I would tell them, I'm sorry, but my home has been dedicated to God. I cannot house you in my home. And this is what was happening. And Jesus condemns this practice. He says, You're you're taking this this dedication to God, and you're using it as an excuse to further your own personal business? Are you kidding me? Because this is what we do with laws. This is why Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you'll be filled. And then he goes on later, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, You don't enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, don't look at them anymore. Don't look at the old way. This is why Paul says, the righteousness that I have comes by by faith. Comes by faith. Here's what I'm trying to say. If I could put it this way. Knowing Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection for me and my sin is the only thing, the only thing that can really satisfy my soul. Not the law not even the moral and ethical commands of Scripture, but knowing Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that can really satisfy my soul. Let me flesh this out for you in conversation. Two weeks ago, I was sitting at a restaurant having lunch with a young adult, and they were saying to me, you know, Tim, I don't know if God can use me in the future, and I don't really know how to get over my past because I've done some stuff that has not been good, and they outlined for me things that actually were illegal that they were participating in that they had done. To which I said, hang on, let me call the cops, but do you mind paying for lunch? No, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I said, listen, let me ask you, what is the basis? What is the basis of God's acceptance of you? Because what they were struggling with, I'll tell you right now, is they were saying, Listen, what do I need to do to make up for the things that I've done? What is it in the law that I need to do to make up for this so that God will look at me again in the right way? To which I say, How does God see you? And I lay out to them a favorite verse of mine that I think I've laid out to you many times. I said, Listen, in Romans 5 8, we read there that Paul writes that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for you. To which I tell this young man next to me, I said, Listen, while you were still in your sin, Christ died for you there in that space. Is that the law? It's the law of the gospel. This week I had a chance to sit with a, a middle-aged woman who's potentially losing her house and has two kids. The kids are angry with her. They're frustrated with life for a couple of reasons. And she says to me, and she's separate from her husband now, she says to me, Tim, I think this is probably God's discipline on me for something that I've done. I'm like, oh, you're probably right. Thanks for coming. No, again, I didn't say that. Then I said, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Is this the way, is this the way God deals with his children? Do you think God's disciplining you for this? Do you think there's something that you need to do? Let's talk about that. What is it that you need to do to get right with God? Do you think you're saying, oh, listen, I'm keeping track. You missed church three Sundays in a row, and you didn't give the way you should have given. You didn't pray the way you should have prayed, and you didn't look at the things. You looked at things you shouldn't have looked at. You smoked things you shouldn't have smoked. You drank and whatever the things you shouldn't have done. Like, uh-huh. Now, therefore, later in your life, I'm going to come back and nail you by making you lose your house. Is that the way... The gospel message tells us that Jesus is. No. While I'm still a sinner, Christ died for me. And so we review the gospel. Yes, you're a sinner. Yep, welcome to the club. God loves you in your sin. By faith, as Paul writes in Philippians 3, by faith, now I come to have the righteousness of God on me was talking with a single mom this week two young kids very young high demand on her life high demand on her life and in the course of conversation it's not difficult to pick up the lack of value that she sees in herself because she's exhausted she is so tired to which i ask the question where does value come from is your value based on your ability to work Is your value based on your ability to excel in sports or in music or in your academics or in your relationship with your spouse? Is that where value comes from? Should her value be tied into her fatigue? Now I understand why she feels that, but what do we do? We review the gospel, not the law. We review that Jesus came. Jesus came to die for you while you were still in your sin. And Jesus believed that you were valuable enough to die for to send his son for, and what do we review? The gospel every time. I was talking with a uh, professional in our community who's struggling in their relationship with their peer. And they're not sure that they can get over this working relationship, and they may need to, to to you know do whatever they need to do. But things may not go go well, and things might go sideways in the professional world, in the white collar world. What do we review in the conversation? Uh, we start talking. I start talking. I listen because they have a shared faith background. Listen, what do you think is forgivable? I know that this person, your peer, maybe even your boss, did this, but can can we talk for a minute about the power of forgiveness in the gospel? Can we talk about what we have been forgiven from? Before we start nailing them to the wall, can I just review for a minute all that I have done that God has forgiven me for? And what to review? The gospel. Because the gospel helps me understand what I've been forgiven from so that I can forgive. It gives me patience so that I can love. It gives me this reconciliation spirit because this is God and his great kindness drawing us to himself. It gives me an idea of value. It gives me an idea of how I even fit in the kingdom. Not because I ever kept the law in the first place. And over and over and over and over and over again in almost every conversation we have of a spiritual nature at all. What are we reviewing? The good news of the gospel, and I'm telling you over and over and over again, and you know people like this who struggle deeply because their worldview is built on this assumption that the more I hunger and thirst for righteousness, that must mean the more I do that is for God, then the better things will be. And that is not what Jesus means when he says this. Jesus made a statement He says, Listen, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me except, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is setting himself up as the one who is to be believed in, the one whom is to be loved. And so as I walk through my own life, as well as walk through with people around me, I feel bad for, I feel sorry for, I long for people to be in a place where they hear the good news and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not by works, so that none of us can boast. And yes, blessed are we when we hunger and thirst, when the deep passions of our soul thirst for righteousness. It's a good thing. That righteousness is found, as Paul does this in Philippians 3, by faith, not works, in Jesus. And then we will be filled and our soul will be satisfied and so if you don't know who this Jesus is or what I speak to these are conversations I would love to have with you and this is why to me it's so fundamental which is why I said at the beginning if I could only have one or two messages at GPC to speak this would be one of them because I don't want us ever as a church, I don't want you ever as a, as a young man, young woman, older man, older woman, whatever, I don't want you ever, ever, ever to get this wrong. Because I spent too many years misunderstanding this. I spent too many years, too many years, trying to get it right. Nail exactly what God wants. And obey and memorize and learn and study and work hard. And that all has its place in development. It has its place. But the foundation of it, come on, the foundation of it, I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me while I was in my sin. That satisfies my soul and fills me like nothing else does. And so I encourage you to run your parenting through this grid, your marriage through this grid, your work through this grid, your money, your friendships, your value of how you see yourself through this same grid. Jesus died for you and he died for me. And in that space, by faith, Our soul can be satisfied. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to stop and give a few moments of our day and our life to see again the hope of the gospel and the way that it works and how we see ourselves and how we relate to you in the standards that we hold other people to and the value we see in our own lives, and how it impacts our working relationships, and how our very souls are impacted by a desire to want to keep reaching for doing, for doing and doing, and more that is right, that we can justify ourselves, show how righteous that we are, even in our own standards. And I pray for us. That while we would pursue, indeed, good and high moral and ethical standards, that we would be above reproach and all these things that are good. We set up good accountability structures and good healthy feedback loops in our own life so we're not sucked into ridiculousness. You would give us clarity about what is the foundation of all of this. Help us to be men and women who are overwhelmed by the good news of the grace of the gospel of Jesus and the transforming power that is, that our identity is found there, our hope, our future, our confidence, and our ability to relate to people around us comes through the gospel because of what Jesus has done for us. Help us never to give that up for a weak substitute of a works-based approach to this life and to this world. Help us protect these boundaries and the simplicity of them for the sake of our children and the next generation as well. Father, we love you. We pray for your direction, your help, your hope for this week. We pray that you would give us the courage to do what we know we need to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name.